Well, thank you, Jordan. It is great, great to be here. Uh, never been to church in a movie theater before. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, but it's great to be here, whether you're a member of this church, you come regularly, or you're just stopping in, maybe even for the first time. It's great, great to have you here. And I want to just begin by unpacking a bit um, the topic I'll be looking at this morning. I'll be looking at this question, what does Christian witness look like in a post-Christian culture? And it's, I just want to unpack what I even mean by those terms to start. By Christian witness, I mean simply, what does it mean to talk about the Christian God in the public square today? And what does that today look like? Well, sociologists have described our culture as one that is post-Christian. And what do I mean by that? By that, I mean um, that we, when we inherit in the Western world a history marked by Christian influence, that shapes the dynamic in which we view God today, sometimes even unconsciously. These are two images that have been given by sociologists to describe what does it mean that we are post-Christian in the West today. The first, you'll see, is this recently picked flower. And this vision, this idea came from Oz Guinness, a sociologist, and he says, you know, when we walk down the streets, even of downtown Montreal today, we see this post-Christian heritage. We see it in the cathedral, we see it in the churches along the roads, that there is something in our history that was Christian, and those churches were more filled back then, 50 years ago even, than they, were, than they are today. There's something of the heritage of Christianity that's in our past, but not necessarily in our present or in our future. And Os Guinness wonders aloud, at the same time, is maybe the more important contribution of Christianity, not these buildings or the institutions behind them, but what came from them. The first orphanages, the first hospitals, the first universities were all started by Christians. Not only in the Western world, not only in Canada, though it would be the case in Canada, actually all around the entire world. There, is, uh, there are values in the Christian faith, the idea of being made in the image of God that led to these institutions growing out of um, out of this message that Jesus brought 2,000 years ago. Os Guinness wonders, just as the way that a flower is picked, our culture today is wanting to keep those institutions and those values of human dignity and inherent worth, even if someone is sick, even if they don't have parents, even if they're not educated, to keep those values in Canada today and say, those things matter. And yet, more and more the desire is to separate from the roots of the Christian values that brought those institutions into being. We want the Christian heritage at its best, but we don't feel we need to keep those theological virtues, the idea of God, and even this message of Jesus and the cross. We can set those aside and keep some of the fruit that's come with it. That speaks to perhaps the post-Christian heritage of our culture. Though Guinness raises the question, what happens when we pick flowers? They're beautiful for a time, but perhaps as the years pass, will we see this heritage begin to fade? as we become separated from those roots. But the second image up here is that of this vaccine. The way that a vaccine works is when you go to the doctor to get vaccinated against a virus, you're actually given a small dosage of the same virus. It's in a weak form, and it's, it's just to give you, your body, the chance to develop antibodies to be able to resist a more potent and strong form of the virus when it comes along. This, if that first image spoke about the post-Christian heritage of our culture, I think this speaks to the post-Christian apathy. What do I mean by that? I think that many people in Canada today have just enough exposure to Christianity, like a little dosage of it, to be not interested. <laughs> 
Maybe it was a few, going to mass as a kid, and that was boring. Maybe it was a once a year kind of thing. Maybe it's from negative experiences people have had from judgy Christians. And what this can leave people is just enough of an exposure to say, you know, I am not interested, I'm not open to this in a deeper way. I have just enough to be inoculated against being open to it anymore. I wonder if maybe that is even part of some of your experience here today. It certainly would be the experience of some of your friends and family. Just enough exposure to Christianity to be no longer interested. Well, I think this, by post-Christian, I think this helps just unpack. I think there's a post-Christian heritage. I think there's also a post-Christian apathy. And with that context, I want to turn again to this verse that Alan read for us this morning. This is what Peter, one of the disciples, wrote to an early group of believers that were struggling to talk about Jesus in public. They were beginning to face consequences, not just by talking about Jesus' ethical teachings, but they kept insisting on speaking this message that Jesus was God, that he died and rose from the dead. And what Peter is trying to encourage these believers to do is to speak into a hostile culture. That is probably a good call. Maybe a few of you out here are watching this sort of tip and being like, this is going to bug me the whole time. (laughs) Thank you. Here's what Peter writes. I'll just read it again. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. What does it mean to talk about God, the Christian God, in a post-Christian culture? I think from this verse, we can glean some insights into how God would have us do that. First thing we notice is that Peter says, Christians should be prepared to give an answer. To give an answer to everyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have. What this is is showing is simply, it's breaking some misconceptions we have sometimes about faith and Christianity. What this is saying is that Christianity isn't meant to be something forced down people's throats. Christianity isn't the sort of thing that when questions are asked about it, the response should just be, just believe. Stop being so curious. Stop asking the questions that you're not supposed to ask. Actually, Peter here is breaking that stereotype and saying Christianity should invite questions because Christians should be giving answers. They should be ready for that. And this word answer is this word apologia. In the Greek, it's where we get the word apologetics, which is not the art of saying sorry. I think those of us who are Canadians, we might be good at that, but that's not what this is about. Apologetics, this is about giving a reasoned defense. The word apologia is actually a legal term in the Greek. It would have been the sort of thing that a lawyer would go up to make, make his case about. It's his apologia. And we see even here, Peter elaborates what should be in this answer, what should be in this way Christians respond and welcome the questions around them. Well, it should be an answer that speaks both to reason and to hope. It's not just about... It's not about winning arguments, but it's about winning people to see the hope that Christians claim to offer. It's not a hope like, if you all maybe know Mark Twain. Mark Twain liked to say, faith is believing what you know ain't true. And Peter would say, that's not quite right. There is something here based on reason and on evidence, but it's also a kind of evidence and a kind of reason that speaks to hope. Thirdly, I think we see Peter saying, these answers were to give are meant to be given not to questions, but to people. Ever thought about that? That often we give answers, we think, we think of answers, what are answers for? Well, answers are for questions, but really Peter here is saying, there's always a questioner behind every question. That we need to always be thinking, I'm speaking here to a person, 
and not just to an objection. And this reminds us that behind every person, and maybe this is even part of your story, there are experiences, there's preconceptions we have about faith. Paul often spoke about becoming a Greek, this early, he was one of the first Christian missionaries, becoming a Greek to the Greeks and a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentile. He was like, I wanna become what I need to be to speak to people. Peter here is saying, we need to be doing this, but at the level of the mind and the heart, we need to be going into people's questions that come out of lived experiences they have and meeting them where they are and giving questions to people and not just giving answers to people and not just to, to questions. What does this look like in the post-Christian culture today? This is really the meat and the rest of our time I want to reflect on. This, is, this gives us some principles to think about, but what about in our culture? What does it mean for Montreal in the 21st century? I think the first question that is often raised because of this idea of being vaccinated is this idea of relevance. What, what does Christianity have to offer to me? It's something that works for you. I'm so glad you're a religious person. I can see it brings real meaning and hope in your life, but I just don't, it's not my jam. And this reminds me a bit of how, um, when I was a little kid, every once in a while after church, we would go to this buffet. It was a great breakfast buffet. And when you're like 10, that's just amazing. So many options that are out there, you know. And I just remember my favorite option at this buffet was the pastry table probably to the dismay of my parents. There were so many pastries. But let us imagine as a small 10-year-old kid, I went you know, to get my food and I just was so enamored with this pastry tray that I just stayed there. And everyone who came in, I just was like, yeah, there's a lot here, but no, no, no. Pastry tray, this is what you really need. And then they were like, haha, cute 10-year-old kid. Yes, I'll have one. And they go to the other stuff and I'm like, no, 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 no. This is really where it's at. You shouldn't be taking anything else. Probably, if I, you know, as a 10-year-old, that's kind of cute a little bit. Oh, cute little kid, and you wait for him to go sit down or, like, look away, and then you actually go and get what you want. But what if a grown adult did that sort of thing? This is what, no, this is where you have to, yeah, I know there's all these options, but you have to eat here. I kind of feel when Christians insist on things like, even if you're not a spiritual religious person, you need to think about God, that it comes across in a similar way. It's like, here are all these other options of ways people find meaning in their life. You know, people who are, who are dedicated to, to, their, you know, to, their, to their music, people who are musicians, people who are, they use their free time and they go rock climbing or they go out and they go camping up north or things like that. And it's just, isn't it just a little narrow-minded to say like, this idea of spirituality, which I have come to like, and this idea of the God of the Bible, which I have come to enjoy, this needs to be your experience too. Doesn't that feel a little narrow-minded to force this spiritual experience or the spiritual side of your time that you need to give? It can feel a bit like a kid forcing you to eat pastries perhaps. It feels that way to me. What does that mean today then when we speak about Christianity and we invite people to think about God and the God of the Bible? There was an author named uh, David Foster Wallace who wrote postmodern novels and fiction. And he was an agnostic, not a religious person by any means. And yet, of all things he chose to speak on when he was giving this commencement address at a university in the States, he chose to speak on worship which was interesting. Remember, he's not a religious person, not a Christian. But here's what he was saying to this graduating group of students. You get to consciously decide what is meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. And then he says this, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. It's provocative. He is not a religious believer, and yet what he's saying is that we have defined worship and religion too shallowly. 
Religion is something deeper than where you go on a weekend, or whether you go to a certain place, a certain building on the weekend. It's something deeper. And what Wallace would say is we all are doing this. It's part of what it means to be human. And then he lays out some of the issues with how this human wiring plays out in our lives. He says the compelling reason for maybe believing, some, choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What do you mean? He says if you worship money and things, if they are where, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual lure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But then he ends with these words, the insidious, things about this, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil, it's that they're unconscious. They are the default settings. What David Foster Wallace is saying is that there's something in human nature that inclines us to find our meaning and identity and value in something. And yet the things we find our value and meaning and identity in don't all treat us the same. They have the capacity and the tendency even to crush us. And what's sobering about these words, as interesting as they are, just to think about them in the abstract, is to know where these came in David Foster Wallace's life. Because David Foster Wallace, months after this talk, ended up taking his own life. And what this suddenly means is that here you have someone, as one of my colleagues put it, he's at the end of his life. giving these words to a group of young people about to start their own. And what we begin to realize is that for Wallace at least, these words are coming out of a lived experience of a pain that he has felt and a frustration with the way that the world seems to work that we can sense is something that's genuinely sincere. This isn't the kind of judgy message about going to church every Sunday. What Wallace is saying is there's something about human nature that inclines us to worship. And yet it seems that the way life works is that these things we worship turn around to crush us. I think in our post-Christian culture today, we have this attitude that religion and spirituality is just one of these options. But I think Wallace, and I think I would say Jesus, (laughs) push us to raise the question of whether actually we're going too shallow what our lives are dedicated to in a more holistic way, what we stay up late at night worrying about, the way we dedicate our free time, the way we answer the question, what do you do with your life? All may perhaps tend to reflect the kind of things we place our ultimate value in, things that Wallace, and I would say Jesus, would say aren't evil in themselves, and yet things that have this tendency to crush us. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One of the interesting phenomena is Christianity is receding a bit in the West. You see it growing in places like Latin America and Africa. And I think this has challenged the Western secular mindset of what Christianity is. Because if you imagine, if Christianity is just an extra set of rules, which is how many people see it, a way of guiding your life and giving you principles to live by, if you were to go into the, you know, let's say in the middle of a slum, a favela in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and you were to present people with more rules to live by, would you see the kind of joy and celebration that characterizes much of the church in the developing world? No. You're not going to have people raise their hands and celebrate having more rules in their life. (laughs) 
It's puzzling, even for us in the West, to look on what's happening in the developing world. But I think at the very least, it must make us realize that faith must be something deeper than just a collection of rules or a way of, of spending time on Sundays. What I think Wallace and what Jesus are saying that is resonating more with the favelas in Rio than they are with the skyscrapers in Montreal is that there is something to life that involves being heavily laden. And what Jesus is claiming to offer in the words reflected here in David Wester Wallace is a relief for the kind of heaviness and ladenness we feel by the things we live by, the expectations we're always living up to have. Is Christianity irrelevant? I think Wallace would say, worship is not. And the question is not whether we are worshiping, but whether what, what we are worshiping can bear the strength we're putting on it. But I want to turn now to the second objection, second of two, this is the second and last one that I think is an objection or a question as we're wanting to hear the culture around us that's post-Christian and maybe wondering what the God of the Bible would offer them, would say to them. And that is this idea that often we feel Christianity is actually harmful, that there's something inherently in it that's not healthy for modern 21st century Canada today. And often behind this is the idea of judgment. It seems that the God of the Bible is one who judges. And if we even, you know, often we think of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament getting less judgy, you know, when you come to the Old Testament, God pretty vindictive and crushing people. And then I had a colleague who liked to say, it seems like the angels had a press conference with God and they're like, you know, this like judgy God just is not working as well. Let's try this. Let's try like love and Jesus. And they were like, yeah, that's great. You know, let's go for that. And so then we go ahead in the New Testament and we think that this is this new kind of rebranded God 2.0 who's more tolerant and less judgy. And yet, if we look closely at the New Testament, we see that one, the judginess of God in the Old Testament is actually an attribute we see uncomfortably on the words of Jesus's own lips. Jesus speaks about things like this, a future judgment. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. We see Jesus laying out these high expectations for moral behavior. Whoever looks at someone lustfully has committed adultery in their hearts. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive yours. Jesus speaks about from within the human heart is where all of these evil things come. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And I think the question in our culture then is, if this is a God, if this is the God of the Bible, and this is a God who judges, why would that be something we want today? And I think behind this is this idea that true love is love in the absence of judgment. (laughs) If you really loved me, you would accept me as I am. You would accept me without judgment. Isn't that what love is really about? And I think we have in our minds sometimes an image a bit like Santa Claus. (laughs) If you're even a grown adult person and you're feeling down around Christmas time, you can go to the mall and Santa Claus will always be there for you. Santa will always be there for you. You maybe will get a few strange looks, but you can always sit on his lap and he will not judge you. I hope. Maybe. Maybe. Probably not, though. Santa Claus won't judge you. He'll accept you as you are. And I think in our culture, and this is a humorous example, but I think our culture would say true love is love in the absence of judgment. So how then would this fit with the God of the Bible who's supposed to be loving, but then also who is judging? Why would a loving God judge me. 
And to think about this, I want to reflect on one of the most famous encounters Jesus ever had with anyone. It's recorded in one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John, where Jesus meets with this woman from Samaria. The story was that Jesus and his disciples were passing through what is now uh, Israel and modern-day Palestine. And as they're walking through one region, they find themselves surrounded by communities that were ethnically different from the Jews. Jesus and his disciples were Jews. This was a Samaritan community. They had common ancestry years back, but they had different ideas on worship. They were sort of ethnic rivals or enemies. And Jesus has this provocative conversation with a woman, which already would have been out of the ordinary. Would a man speak to a woman publicly like this? And yet what had happened was Jesus' disciples had gone into the town to get something to eat. Jesus says, I'm going to hang out outside, and he sits by this well, and here he has this conversation with this woman. And what's significant about the context, in the first century, people would have realized, we're told it's midday. It's hot outside. You might think, well, that makes sense why the woman would get water. But actually, in this culture, you would only get water at the beginning of the day. You'd go early, before the sun rises. Already, the listeners, people hearing this story in the first century would realize, this is something interesting here. This woman apparently does not want to go with everyone else who goes early in the morning. She is wanting to get away from her, her community, and do this on her own. And we sort of get a sense throughout the story why that might be. But here's how the conversation unfolds. Jesus says to this woman, give me a drink. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. And here's where we realize that Jesus and this woman are talking about two different things. <laughs> this woman is pointing out that Jesus, at one point she says, you don't even have a bucket, how are you going to get this water? But Jesus here speaks about a water that will never leave her thirsty again, and yet here Jesus explains indirectly a bit where he's coming from, and you see how far on different pages they are. Jesus then changes the subject completely, it seems, and says, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answers Jesus, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to Jesus, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. It's great, one of these biblical understatements. I perceive that you are a prophet. But here she changes the subject. She talks about some of the differences theologically. She sort of has gotten too personal. She realizes Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. She backs off a bit. But then she ends up saying this to Jesus. I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town, and she said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? For many of us, especially who have grown up in the church, this is a familiar passage, but I want to reflect on it through the lens of thinking about love and judgment. I want to point out that Jesus in this story judges this woman. Jesus judges her harshly, you could say. He's speaking here about water, but clearly we begin to see that when Jesus is speaking about a water of a deeper kind that will actually satisfy her thirst, and then he speaks about her husbands, we see her echoes of David Foster Wallace. Jesus is saying, you're looking for satisfaction and identity and value in these men that you're pursuing. It's like the water that you're drinking, but it's never filling you up. 
And here you have so many levels of judgment. Jesus is judging her whole life purpose. Jesus is saying, you're dedicating your entire life to this, but it's not filling you up. Jesus is judging her on what would have been a serious moral taboo in her culture, sleeping around with all these other guys, having multiple husbands. Jesus is judging her for that. He's judging her at the heart of her God and the God she worships. She's saying, I believe there's a Messiah who's coming. And Jesus says, no, you've got that wrong. The Messiah is here. Jesus judges her. He judges her spiritually. He judges her morally. He judges her in terms of her life purpose. Jesus judges this woman. And yet, the scene ends in a way we might not expect. How do people respond today when we're judged? (laughs) Especially, I don't know, what what would it be for you, your deepest shame, your sense of failure? Certainly this woman had people, when she was growing up, who had expectations for her life that she had let down. Jesus brings up this deepest failure in her life. I wonder how you would respond. What would that be for you? It's suddenly brought up right into your face. How would we respond in our culture today? We would respond with anger. We would maybe just politely try to walk away calmly. But look at how she responds in the story. I think we see three interesting parts of her response. One, we see, first she leaves her water jar. This is interesting. That's why she had come to draw water in the first place. She'd already made that long trek out. It's hot. But something of more importance has happened, has come into her life. But then look at this. She goes away into the town. And she goes to talk to people. But this was the woman at the beginning of the story who was doing everything that she possibly could to avoid human contact. (laughs) She was avoiding, she didn't want any opportunity for them to probably to bring up those ugly parts of her past and to tease her about it. And it was something that she was so ashamed about that she would rather go alone in the middle of the day just to avoid human contact than to have to face you know, have to face her neighbors to talk about. And yet this woman who began the story running away runs towards people. And not only does she run towards people, but look at this in the part in bold there. Come and she says, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can you imagine how that would have sounded to people who really knew her? Oh, we know what you've done. All you've ever did? Yeah, we know about that. But something has happened. This part of her past, which was the greatest shame and her greatest sense of failure, suddenly no longer has a hold over her. Suddenly, from this encounter with Jesus, which involved judgment, she now has gone from someone who felt so ashamed about her past she couldn't even speak to anyone, to now running to people and bringing up this very part of her own past that no longer has a hold over her. She leaves her water jar there. Something of greater importance has come into her life. What explains this? This is the puzzle for Western society today. She has been judged, but she leaves almost with joy on her feet and a changed life. One of my favorite uh, stories, films, I got married just a few months ago, which was exciting, and it's led to new, new things. And one of those things, actually, I got into this before we were even married, was watching shows like Pride and Prejudice. Right? Yeah, yeah. It is good. It is good. We like this version the best. There have been a few that have been made. Um, but if you know the story, it's about, a, um, it's about a, a rocky romance, I could say. This is probably, I don't know if my wife will appreciate the way I'm summarizing this. It's a rocky romance with a guy who, in maybe classic guy fashion, has maybe trouble even knowing what he wants and expressing that to the girl who you know, has known what she wants and has liked him for a long time. This is this girl, Elizabeth. The two characters are Darcy and Elizabeth. Finally, the moment comes where Darcy actually expresses his feelings for Elizabeth, and it comes sort of all in a moment. They find themselves alone together, and Darcy just blurts this out to her. 
And he says these words at first. He says, in vain I have struggled, it will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. And for guys in the room, this is a great start. He's done really well to this point. But he goes on and sort of puts his foot in his mouth because he says this, in declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going against, expressly against, the wishes of my family and my friends, and I hardly need add my own better judgment. (laughs) Darcy expects Elizabeth to leap into his arms. She does not. This is what she says in response. I might wonder why, with so evident a desire to offend me and insult me, you chose to tell me that you like me against your will, your reason, and even against your character. Darcy's a little slow. We guys are a little slow. What is going on here? What Elizabeth wanted was not Darcy's love expressed all in a moment when he had the the feelies right then and there and just wanted to say it out even though it goes against his own better judgment. She wanted Darcy to declare his love for her in the presence of his judgment. It bothered her that this was something he hadn't thought through. It bothered her that he felt it went against his own better character. It bothered her because what Elizabeth wanted was not to be loved in the absence of judgment, but in the presence of it, with the fullness of it. And I think there's something in here about the nature of what true love really is. This is what one pastor in New York City likes to say. He says, to be fully loved, but not fully known, is shallow. To be fully loved, but not fully known, is shallow. And it's shallow because you can always wonder whether this person will really love you if they really know who you are. If you're fully loved, but you're not fully known, it's going to be shallow. If that person really saw you at your worst, would they still be there for you? But then he says this, to be fully known and not loved is our greatest fear. To have someone know you to the depths, to know you at your worst, that moment of deepest shame that that you thought about a moment ago, if that failure or that way you failed expectations suddenly was brought forward and then you were rejected for that, I can't, you're just not touchable. You're not lovable anymore. That's our greatest fear. But then he says this, to be fully known and fully loved is our heart's greatest desire. To have someone know you to your depths, to know you at your worst, and then to be loved and known and chosen in that place. That is what we all long for. I think the puzzle for our Western world is about love and judgment. And yet, I think it comes in this form. We think that true love is love in the absence of judgment. But I think we all have a longing to be fully known and fully loved. I think what Darcy and Elizabeth show us is that true love comes in the presence of it. And I just want to reflect on how this took took a, took a practical form in this woman's life. For her, it looked like being known and loved by Jesus, I think, was realizing, one, that he knew everything about her. He knew her at her very worst, perhaps even worse than the worst of the gospel that was going around her community at the time. And yet she must have realized that Jesus, even though he knew that, had offered her living water ahead of time. He offered her that first. And then she realized he knew all this about her. 
and she began to realize, I think, what this water thing was really all about. And what was really offered here was a source of a relationship with God. If Jesus is claiming to be this kind of a Messiah, a kind of love and affirmation that she is getting a taste of now that could be so anchored in her heart that in comparison to the love she'd found in other places, this would well up and give her such a satisfaction that those other things simply she would see would not compare. I think in this moment, she is fully known and fully loved. And you see the change it has on her life. She has lost her fear of others and of people. She is a new kind of person in relation to the community that she's in. It no longer has a hold of her because they no longer have the final word on her status or on her goodness or on her identity. We see that she loses that shame in her past. I imagine it's not something that she immediately just forgot, but it doesn't have the hold over her that it had before. If Jesus knows her at her worst and he, and he still finds her worthy of love, what would all other people have to contribute? What would, what would their voices have to say? What does it matter? And lastly, I think we see that she, takes, she puts down her jar. There's something new that's come into her life that's taken on a greater importance. For her in this moment, it meant that the first thing for her to do was to invite people to know that experience of being known and loved. And I just want to pause and wonder, what, how could Jesus offer this kind of love? Love in the presence of judgment. And scholars who study the book of John pay attention to that at the end of Jesus' life, just chapters after this, Jesus again talks about water and thirst. When Jesus is on the cross, he says among his last words, I thirst. And what historians tell us about this scene of Jesus dying, this probably also was about noon, that Jesus was on the cross in the heat. And it would make sense even physically for him to be thirsty. He's hanging up there, he's not had a drink. But scholars of the book of John point out that this theme of thirsting and water is something deeper. It relates to this David Foster Wallace idea of what we're living for and what is the ultimate source of value in our lives. And what scholars say about this is they say, what Jesus is being deprived of here on the cross, when he's taking the judgment for all of our sin, and when he's taking that separation from God that we deserved, what Jesus is missing here is exactly what Jesus was able to offer this woman at the well. Because Jesus would go on at the cross to thirst and to be separated from God and bear all that judgment and, and, um, and shame that this woman should have borne, he is able to offer her a fullness of love in the presence of judgment, even from a good and holy God. And I think though this woman wouldn't have been aware that this would happen a few months or years later, I think she would have realized after the fact that it was because this had happened historically that she could know for sure that that kind of love in the presence of judgment, that she could know she was loved even though she was broken, she had that guaranteed through the fact that Jesus had taken that judgment on the cross. And I just want to pause here and, and just wonder, you know, I have not met any grown-ups who have been brought to tears by Santa Claus. <laughs> I know of none. Maybe you know of some. I would love to meet that person. <laughs> I know of many grown men and women who have been brought to tears by Jesus. True love is love in the absence of judgment, or is true love love in the presence of it? I feel what we're reminded by in David Foster Wallace's own life is that we, as much as in our culture we champion love without judgment, we are more lonely than we've ever been. The depression rates have never been as high. Suicide continues to be the leading cause of death in young adults. 
we find this eerie echo in the words of David Foster Wallace where we all identify with, even though we're in this love without judgments, there is something lacking in it. And I think, just as we see with Santa Claus, it's not a love that can change your life. Santa Claus doesn't change many lives, but the love of Jesus does. There is something about going to God and knowing you're fully known and fully loved that has the power to become that source of welling up of sense of value and identity when we, when we move into that relationship with God. It has the power to change our lives. And I just wanna wonder, what does that even look like in this story, just as we close with this? I think this woman even gives us the, the simplest way, both of how people first come to have that experience with God and enter into that relationship with him, and for those of us who are Christians already, what the daily Christian life looks like. First, we see she acknowledges. There's no pushback when Jesus puts his finger on the things in her heart that are wrong. There's honesty. The first thing that God asks from us is honesty. The second thing we see, I think, is gratefulness. There's a faith and a trust that Jesus is able to deliver on what he's, he's claiming to offer her, a living water. And even in his very posture towards her, this kind of possibility of being fully known and fully loved at the same time. I think the Christian posture is one of honesty. It's one of gratefulness. I think it is one also of resolve. This led to a change in her life. Something had to be left behind. She couldn't go after the same source of water that wasn't filling her up before. And I think that these three elements form the foundation of what does it mean to start a relationship with God and what does it mean day in and day out to continue it. We see honesty, we see gratefulness, and we see resolve. And as we see in this passage here, we see, I think that is the foundation of the gentleness and respect. And that is the foundation, interestingly, of this very first sentence that Peter begins with. Before he has a word to say on how Christians are to use eloquent arguments to talk about God and invite people to see the reason and the hope, Peter has words to say about the state of our hearts. In your hearts, revere Christ as the Lord. Peter doesn't talk about going to a weekly worship service. He doesn't talk about having your quiet time every morning, though those are outflows of the deeper thing. What is the deeper thing? Peter talks about the heart. What God cares about is our hearts. John Piper likes to say, what it means to be a Christian is not even that you've said a certain prayer, it's that God becomes your treasure. He becomes that source of water, that ultimate value. But how does that happen? I think it must come when we, by faith, believe that we are fully known and fully loved. But that starts with taking that step of honesty, gratefulness, and resolve with God. As Jordan mentioned, we're gonna have a time of Q&A after the service. We're gonna be just outside and we'd love to chat with you either about even just these ideas about understanding our, our neighborhood and our culture, but also if this is something you feel if you feel, I think that God has something in this for me this morning, I would just encourage you, whether you speak to us or to people who brought you or even just your friends here, if you go to this church, I would just say, don't, I would not have you leave this place without sharing that with someone else and getting prayed for. We would love to pray for you if you wanted to even just come and chat or even ask questions. But let me just close now in a word of prayer. If you'd bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, how frightening it is that you are a God of judgment. Lord, we realize how far we fall short. I realize how far I fall short. And yet what I see in this story, God, is that you, through the thirsting you did on the cross, are able to meet me and have me be fully known and fully loved. You are able to meet us 
and offer us living water because you thirsted, because you took that judgment for us. You're able to meet us with true love in the presence of judgment. And Lord, and we see in this story that that love that you offered was able to change this woman's life. And Lord, that is what we ask for ourselves. We ask, Lord, to be freed from our need to continue to go to things that end up crushing us for worth and affirmation. Lord, we see this by faith that you are able to do this. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers and those maybe who are wanting to know you more, would you help us move to this place of honesty towards you about the real state of our hearts, but also one of gratefulness for what you've done and the assurance that we can have that we are fully known, fully known and fully loved by you. And lastly, we do pray, Lord, at the level of our hearts, would you give us resolve to live for you, not to earn that love you've given to us, but to respond to it with gratefulness and with gentleness and respect to our lords, to those we want to share with you about. In your son's name I pray, amen.